you know, just as we have sung, do you know why we're able to stand blameless with great joy? It's because Jesus Christ has completely paid the penalty of our sin, and he has washed us thoroughly, our conscience, our body, our soul. We are cleansed and we are forgiven, and we have life in Christ. And so we stand in awe of him. So would you join me in prayer? Oh, Lord God Almighty, we come together as a body of believers, and we worship you from the heart. And on this particular day, this Good Friday, we are so very mindful that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, Lord, we worship you and we praise you. And we're asking, Lord, that as we now turn to your holy word, that you would take all distraction from us and that you would fill us with your spirit, transform our hearts and our lives with your truth. We ask this as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. And if you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27. You know, the most important question that was ever asked, the ultimate question, was asked by someone that was highly unlikely. In fact, it took place 2,000 years ago on a very early Friday morning. A Roman governor in the far end of the empire, in a land called Judea, his name is Pontius Pilate, and he asked the most important question that has ever been asked. It's actually at the heart of the passage we're going to be looking at today in Matthew chapter 27. In fact, it is the focal point of the gospel of Matthew, and it is simply this question that is found in Matthew chapter 27, verse 22. Then Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? What shall I do with Jesus? I want you to think deeply about that question. Your response to Jesus Christ has eternal implications. And in order to respond to this question, what shall we do with Jesus, we need to know who Jesus really is. And so I invite you to open up your Bibles and take a look at Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. And I want to give you just the background here. A rooster is crowed now for the second time. Jesus' chief disciple, Peter, he's now denied him three times. And it's at this time I want you to take notice of who Jesus is. He is innocence rejected. Take a look, Matthew chapter 27, it says, verse 1, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away. And it delivered him to Pilate, the governor. And so we see uh, Jesus here. Jesus, having been apprehended by the Jewish authorities, over the night he had actually had these mock trials. They were actually illegal, according to Jewish law, to have a, a trial at night. And yet they were so determined to put Jesus to the death. And the issue was, is because Jesus was making the claims and doing the work that he is God. In fact, we, we see it, uh, if you want to just jump back up there, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, 
See, they said this, Jesus was silent before them, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. That is the issue. Are you really the promised Messiah? Are you really God the Son? And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus absolutely affirmed that indeed he is the eternal Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. And of course, they absolutely rejected him. And so, to have some semblance of following the law, why they had this very early morning trial. In fact, that's what you see here. It was in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of all the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. Here would be the gathering of the Sanhedrin. That means the 70 ruling Jews, and then you add the additional high priest for 71. They had all come together. In fact, they'd been up all night abusing, mocking, and accusing Jesus, and now they have condemned him to death. And they bound him, and they took him away to Pilate, the governor. And here was the problem. They hated Jesus, But the Romans had stripped them of the authority of capital punishment. They couldn't now adjudicate their own um, people and actually bring them to death. That would have to be done by the Romans. And so they bring him, the innocent one, who's been rejected, to Pilate. And when you come to then verse 3 through 10, you see innocence betrayed. The scene, as they're moving Jesus to Pilate, who's bound and coming as a criminal, we actually then start to see what had taken place with the one who betrayed him, a man who has gone down in infamy, the man by the name of Judas. And we see, verse 3, that when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? You see to that yourself. Judas, a man who had traveled with Jesus for three years, the man, perhaps even the most trusted among the 12 because he was in charge of their finances, was the betrayer. As prophesied, he would do these things. And he did. But Judas, it says, he felt remorse. He had betrayed him, and he, he felt remorse. In the Greek, this is a word that actually means regret. He felt bad about this, but it's not the word repentance. Big deal, big difference between regret and repentance. Regret is, I hate this. I hate the implications. I, I hate that I feel this way. Repentance, on the other hand, is absolute brokenness. Down on your face, broken before God. Judas doesn't have repentance. He has regret. He has remorse. And so he goes to the chief priest. Remember, he had been paid off with 30 pieces of silver, which, by the way, had been prophesied. This is how the Son of Man would be betrayed. And it says, if these 30 pieces of silver, I think of it, he had abandoned this very good friend of his who he knew was the promised Messiah, who saw the miracles, did the work, the wisdom, the power. He felt like these 30 pieces of silver were worth it. 
to turn over Jesus so he could be apprehended by the Jewish authorities. You know, money will do some strange things for you. And this isn't even a whole lot of money, you know? But it's as if that money was just like like burning in his hands. And the guilt that he had and this regret that he had, he's like, I've got to get rid of this. And so he says, oh, I don't want this. Here's your money back. And there's like the priest said, hey, listen, you know what? We don't care about that. See to that yourself. And so in this desperate me- matter of spite, verse 5, he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed He threw it into the holy place. He went up to the temple mount. He walked in the temple. He went to the temple, and he throws those 30 pieces of silver into the holy place where the priests are going to have to get down on their hands and knees and pick these these coins of silver up, the very ones they used to pay off Judas to betray him. And Judas, though, discovered that by getting rid of those coins, he couldn't get rid of this guilt and the regret that he had. So driven was he by this great regret that it says that after he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, he went away and hanged himself. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse uh, 25, Cursed is he who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent person. Judas would have been familiar with a text like that. And perhaps he thought that if I kill myself, I'll be free from the guilt. In fact, the absolute opposite happened. It bound him eternally to his guilt, this act of utter selfishness. And so the chief priest, verse 6, they took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. It's blood money. It is payment for murder. You know, this is, this is what false religion looks like. You are, well, there's, there's some parts about our law here that we've got to follow here. And you know, it's, this is the price of blood. We, we really can't have this money here. But yet they felt very comfortable of handing over one who is absolutely innocent, Jesus, who demonstrated that he was the Messiah, why, they seemed to have no problem with that whatsoever. What they felt like, oh, we got a, a problem. We got a problem because we have this money here, this money that we paid off this guy. It's blood money. It's money that was used to, for the payment of murder. And so they had a little conference. Look at verse 7. And they conferred together. With, and with the money, they bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. And for this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. And here we have themes that were given to us, like in Jeremiah 13 or Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, with uncanny precision. This is exactly what was prophesied would take place. And so it did. I mean, these are the experts of the law, especially the scribes. They know the, the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards. Certainly they had to see 
This is exactly what is prophesied as to happen. But what we see here is innocence betrayed by Judas. Well, that leads us then to verse 11. And I want you to see that Jesus and his innocence, it was declared. Take a look, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor. Remember verse 2, the governor is Pontius Pilate. Now, just a little background on him. We don't know a lot about Pontius Pilate before he's reigning uh, in Judah, Judea. Uh, we do know they reigned from A.D. 26 to 36. We don't know a lot afterwards. But we do know that his time uh, when he was reigning as the governor was one that was filled with all sorts of brutality. And um, it, was, it was just kind of like overwhelming how evil this man could be. And to help you understand a little bit about what we're dealing with here, Pontius Pilate, having received authority from the Roman Senate to come and be the governor at the far end of the Roman Empire in this land of Israel, specifically in the land of Judea, he decided, you know, I'm going to show these Jews who's boss. There is a new sheriff in town. Previous governors had avoided creating massive revolt among the Jewish people. And one of the things that they did not do was bring the Roman standards in with the depictions of Caesar because the Jewish people, according to the Old Testament, there should be no graven image, just no worship of God. And so it was something that they just absolutely would not tolerate. But Pilate, when he received the governorship in AD 26, he decided, you know, we're going to bring Judea in with the rest of the Roman Empire. And just like it's practiced everywhere in this empire, with me in charge, it's going to be practiced. And so under the cover of darkness, he had his Roman soldiers bring in all the standards and line the streets with these images of Caesar. And when the Jewish people woke up in the morning, they were absolutely just taken aback by these standards of pictures and depictions of Caesar. And they came rushing to Pilate and they said, listen, If you don't take these down now, this entire nation, all of us, we will all fight to the death. I don't care how many you slaughter, we're going to come after you with everything we've got. And it won't just be our men, and we will win. Pilate eventually yielded and backed off. But there was always this very tense relationship. In fact, Pilate never seemed to really understand the Jewish people, their traditions. And and they were kind of perplexed. And yet he was rough, rugged, and he didn't seem to have a lot of regard for them. And it is this man, the governor, that they bring Jesus to because they can't put Jesus to death. And so Pilate most certainly had heard of Jesus. His popularity could not be ignored. In fact, just a a week before, they're all hailing Jesus as the son of David, and he's riding in on a donkey, and they're throwing down coats and palm branches He was very well aware of this. And here in the very early morning, this could have been even at 5 a.m., they most likely had to wake him up. He's either staying at Herod's palace that had been created, or possibly he's staying at the Antonia Fortress, which is actually at the corner of the Temple Mount. This is where all the Roman soldiers would be, and this is where he would adjudicate all of the cases that would be brought to him. It's likely that this is where he is brought, and he had to be woken up for this. And so they bring Jesus, and he is standing for the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? 
And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Are you really the king of the Jews? And so Jesus answers in the affirmative, and he's totally taking this in. But then notice what's taking place here. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. Now, what is it that the Jewish people were accusing him? You see, they had their religious trials, and the religious trials were all based on the fact, are you really the Son of God, the Messiah? We don't want you. We don't like you. You don't fit in with our plan. But when they bring him to Pilate, they realize that that's not going to be enough to get Jesus killed. He might get his wrist slapped, but they're not going to crucify him over this. We've got to trump this up. We've got to come up with some charges that are going to whet the appetite of Rome to kill this man. And we read about it in Luke chapter 23, verse 2. It says this, and listen specifically to the three charges they bring. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Well, that first one, Pilate, like misleading our nation, I don't know. But this whole idea of like uh, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, that's going to be a problem. And calling yourself a king? Well, there is a king. I'm filling in here in Judea. And then there, of course, there's this little deal about Caesar, the emperor. That's, that's not going to work. And so these are the charges that Luke records and we see that, that are brought to him. And Pilate then listens to this, and he said to him, Do you not hear, verse 13, how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge, so the governor was quite amazed. I want you to know that Pilate had seen lots of people, hundreds if not thousands of people that have stood before him, the guilty and the innocent. But all of them would do everything and plead for their lives talking about their innocence, going through great emotion, great expression. And here's Jesus, absolutely calm, looking him in the eyes, and he says nothing. And I want you to know, it was absolutely amazing. Like the text says in verse 14, the governor was quite amazed. And you're wondering, well, like, so Pilate's amazed, Why doesn't Pilate just say, you guys, don't you got this little Passover deal? In fact, that's why I've come into town. Uh, um, He asked Pontius Pilate, his home base was Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean coast. He's into Jerusalem because of the Passover. He'd been woken up. I'm sure he could have used a few extra hours of sleep. And he's like, why didn't he just send everybody home? And that's because... Things had been going pretty rough. Even the Roman Senate at this time, it's been recorded that they were deliberating whether or not that Pilate was actually good enough and had what it took to run this kind of rampant um, area of Israel filled with people that wanted to rebel. He's about one bad decision from being pulled out or even worse. And so he's, he's in this situation here. Uh, Luke, actually, it's interesting. Luke 23, all four Gospels, you know, give us accounts of this. They kind of do it like in stereo fashion. 
Luke, it's, it's mentioned that as the Jewish people are hurling their assaults toward him and saying why he should be put to death, it is mentioned that he's, he began his ministry in Galilee. And Pilate's ears perked up when he heard that. Because you remember, uh, Pilate's jurisdiction, why it's not up north in Galilee. You know who is in charge there? Actually, one of, one of Pilate's, like, enemies, a guy he hates, another Roman authority, his name, Herod Antipas. And when he hears that, he goes, oh, really? So he's from Galilee, huh? And he's like, I can unload this. I can get out of this real easy. This is Herod's problem. You send him up north. And so Herod, who is also in town for the Passover, he sends Jesus there. And Herod had really wanted to see Jesus. I mean, Herod is the guy that, Antipas is the guy that put John the Baptist to death, right? And he really wanted to see Jesus. And here was this great opportunity, but here's Jesus, abused, people would spit on him. It's all tied up in shackles. Jesus answers him nothing. Herod can find nothing wrong with him. So they beat him up, abuse him, and they send him back. And here we go, and here we see this situation here that's now taking place of what is Pilate going to do? So picking it up here, it says in verse 15, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. And at that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So the, the uh, Romans, in order to kind of appease the Jews, this was started likely before Pilate ever showed up in Judea, during the Passover, just to show like, hey, we're working with you, we'll release a prisoner, one of your Jewish people that we captured that we're probably going to hang, you know, uh, crucify. We'll release one. They picked him, okay? They, the Jewish people can say, well, we want this guy. No, they're going to probably pick an assortment of folks, three or four. They'll parade him out, and you get to pick one. And so Pilate realizing, like, well, Herod's not dealing with this. I, I've got it, but I've got a way out. I, I, they will most certainly pick Jesus. I mean, Jesus was really popular like a week ago. Certainly they're going to pick him, right? And so it says, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. And at that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. It's interesting. In the, this word Barabbas, it's the Aramaic means son of the father. It's very possible that Barabbas' dad was like a rabbi, like a teacher in Israel. But Barabbas, I tell you what, man, this was one wicked guy. We know from the Gospel of Luke, he had been convicted of murder, sedition, that's leading a revolt against Rome, and robbery, okay? I'd imagine that even most of the Jewish people were afraid of him. And so Pilate's smart and cunning. He parades out and he brings out how about Barabbas? It is likely that Barabbas and some others were to be crucified on this day because this is a great way for Rome to make a statement. Hey, anytime you're flirting with the idea of insurrection, we just want to remind you while you're all gathered here for Passover in Jerusalem, we're going to crucify a few folks on a very public road. This is what happens. And Barabbas was a notorious sinner. And so he, he hauls out Barabbas and like, what do you think about this guy? Well, look at this. It says in verse 17, So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want 
me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Okay, that's a really important word. It means Messiah. You want the Messiah or do you want this piece of work here? Barabbas, insurrectionist, robber, lethal. Not the kind of guy you want running around your streets. And he says, look at verse 18. For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. And so here is the situation here where he's like, they're going to pick Barabbas and I'm going to get out of this. But then something really unique happens. Take a look, verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message. Now, if you're thinking this was a text message, that wasn't around at that point. But she had a way of sending a message, probably through a courier, saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. The Romans saw dreams as omens, and like to receive this, and this was likely a dream given by God to once again show the innocence of Jesus. And she felt so strongly about this that in the middle of this trial, and all these people gathered, and all the yelling, she said, I got to get a message to my husband before he makes a tragic mistake. And so she sends this message, and he gets it. Uh, verse 20, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. Do you see this? This is just kind of a mob rule, just stirring up the crowd. They were supposed to be judges, fair, but no, 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 no. They're just rallying and, and getting the people to want Barabbas instead of Jesus. But then verse 21, but the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And I think Pilate was like, you've got to be kidding me. What? Barabbas? And it's as if time froze. And Pilate then asks the question, the ultimate question. It's found right here in verse 22. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do? with Jesus, who is called Christ. What shall I do with the one who is called the Messiah? And you want to know the answer of history? You want to see it in black and white? Here it is. But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him crucify him. They said, crucify him. Pilate said, but why? He said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. Why would they do that? Because you see, Jesus wasn't the kind of Messiah they were looking for. They wanted a king, all right, and they certainly had messianic expectations, but they wanted someone like, like David David, son of David, that's what he's supposed to be. What we want, like a military conqueror. We want someone to overthrow Rome, get these guys off our backs. We want someone that's going to bring about political change, economic security. This guy, Jesus and his truth, and he doesn't go along with us and our plans. 
He doesn't seem to care of our manipulation and how we've added all the extra laws and rules and how we can control people and how we have these esteemed positions. We don't want him at all, and so they keep just saying, crucify him. This is innocence, though, declared, because Pilate can find nothing wrong with him. But Pilate realizes that he is about to have a riot on his hands, and so we see innocence condemned. Verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, listen to these words. His blood shall be on us and on our children And then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. You see, they had one weapon that Pilate simply could not defend himself. You find it recorded in John chapter 19, verse 12, when they made this statement, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar, for everyone who makes himself out to be a king actually opposes Caesar. And he just had to back away. He knew that Jesus is innocent, and yet he could see this revolt. And do you see these statements? They are inviting divine wrath upon themselves. This man's blood, it'll be upon us and upon our children. Do you see how blind it is to be religious and yet not really knowing God and rejecting his Messiah? His blood be upon us and our children. You have no idea what you're even talking about. And then, did you see this? He released Barabbas for them. You know, this is very interesting because it symbolizes the substitutionary death of Jesus. Jesus, the absolute innocent one, is now stepping into the place of Barabbas, the completely guilty one. The innocent one will die. The guilty one will be made free. And that's exactly what we see pictured here. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Scourging, done by these trained soldiers, they were called lictors. They had like a small kind of handled stick with it with leather straps at the end of these bones, nail, glass. These guys were professional torturers, and they'd string a guy up, and they'd just lacerate his back all the way down his legs. Some people actually died from just the absolute horror and shock of it. And then after having him scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. This was the most torturous of deaths. And this is the gospel. The absolute innocent one dying on behalf of the guilty ones. And why? Why Jesus, the innocent one? Why did he take the journey to the cross? Let me just give you four reasons. One, to suffer in our place. He would actually bear the full penalty of our sins and die in our place. He did it also to secure our salvation. He made him, 
speaking of God, who knew no sin, absolutely innocent, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Why did Jesus, the innocent one, why take this journey to the cross? To strengthen our love for him. Anytime that you don't think that God loves you and you feel like, I don't really have a lot of affection or heart for God, recognize the condition of your heart and think of Jesus going to the cross on your behalf, the innocent one dying for you, and you will be overwhelmed with his love, the divine love represented by Christ and given to us. And it also then shows us how to persevere. Peter writes of this. Remember Peter, the one who denied him? He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. How do you suffer in this life? When you go through it and the unjust issues and that we all face at different times, focus on Jesus. Find your strength in him and follow in his steps. Do you see this? The innocent one was condemned to death so that guilty ones, like you and me, why we might truly live. And so I just have a question for you. What will you do? with Jesus. What will you do with Jesus? And that is why we have gathered this evening. When you came in, you were handed or by one of our uh, welcoming team this piece of paper. I know that I can see some of you have been holding it in your hands, glancing at it. I would like you to take some time to actually write out your response. What will you do with Jesus? And what this is going to look like here is, um, I'm going to give you some time to pray, uh, to think about what you would do in response. And then after several minutes of us just doing this together, then I'm going to invite you to come, and there will, in a few minutes, be a cross that's placed here and a basket in front of it. And whatever you put on this piece of paper, I'm just going to ask that you'd come, you can fold it, and you can place it in the basket. And then from there, we have communion stations all along the worship center here. Four on this side, four over here. Then you can come and take communion. Um, What will happen with that is that uh, you can do that as an individual, with your family, your friends that you came with. If you would like to do it on your own, um, you can. We also have people that would just walk through communion for you. But after all, that is why we have gathered to worship God and to remember Jesus. And the way he said, I want you to remember me, is partaking in communion. When then this concludes, then this will then, uh, we will then conclude our worship service. And so I'm going to ask that you will just pray and ask God, how do you want me to respond to this? I'm going to give you some ideas of what you could do. What will I do with Jesus? You could express your love and devotion for him. You could write a verse. You could draw a picture. You could perhaps write out a next step that God is calling you to, to 
greater steps of faith. Perhaps there's a ministry opportunity, and it's time for you to take that step. You might want to write it down. What shall I do with Jesus? Maybe there is someone that you need to forgive. It's, let's, let's deal with that tonight. Put it on there. Ask God to help you to do that. Maybe there is an offering of praise. Maybe there is like, God's blessed me with finances, and yeah, I'm a, I'm a regular giver, but I'd like to make a significant gift for God's glory and his kingdom. Write it on here. Maybe it's to live in his love. Maybe it is to have a greater sense of gratefulness. Perhaps just a greater sense of peace of, in his, of his sovereign grace. So I'm going to ask now that you take a few minutes to write your response. What will you do with Jesus? So I'll give us a word of prayer and then you can pray and write. Lord, we come before you. We've opened up your word and you've opened up our hearts and we see Jesus, the innocent one who died on our behalf. So God, help us to understand how you would want us to respond and to be able to articulate that with words, a verse, something meaningful as we consider Jesus and we respond to this question, the ultimate question, what will we do with Jesus?